people just don't understand. They want to be great. They want to be famous. They want to be whatever based on what they're outputting. But that's not what's critical to a sustained and successful career as an artist, whether you make a lot of money or not. You know, because you, you, if you're not inputting, if you're not absorbing music and culture and what's happening in your hood, in your house, in your heart, in your brain, then whatever you're putting out may be, may be beautiful, but I don't think it's going to be impactful. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. Artists always come back to the making. And when we look back at the COVID years, over time, we'll start to see what we went through with this whole pandemic thing. For sure, it's going to be there in our missing family members, restaurants and stores closing, PPP loans. But I know we'll see it for sure. And the things that artists created during this time, artists are like sponges taking in events of the day and giving you something meaningful, hopefully it's meaningful, that connects with the moment. My man Beresford Booth and Claire Scarborough have put together a book focused on this moment, this time. The book is called Shifting Time, African-American Artists 2020 through 2021 collects the art and stories of over 70 artists with visual art, poems, essays, statements, all offering a glimpse into their lives during this time. It touches on all the feelings that we've had over the recent period and serves as a starting point for us to understand what we've been through. And of course, the Noah's family is well represented. Toki Taylor, the leader, Martin Africante, Ima Ime, many others. It's a fascinating book that you want to add to your collection. And today we got the co-authors of the project to talk about it. The stories, how it came together, archiving the online sessions from the Sugar and Water uh, sessions they had on Instagram, the need for connection and processing what we've all been through and the way that artists do. It's one big conversation that we're having. Hopefully you enjoy it. I know you enjoy it. Why would I even bring it up to you if you ain't going to enjoy it? It's the noise, baby. You know what it is. Studio noise, the voice of black art. You think there's going to be some book about African-American arts? And we don't talk about it. Oh, that's a dub, baby. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. You know, it's always going to bring you the very best in black contemporary art. And it don't get no better than this. And you know, I'm going to bring it to you, baby. That's how it is. Presented by Black Art in America. Make sure you go to the website. and You can see the videos from these interviews on the website at blackartamerica.com. The Black Art Family Union, Juneteenth weekend, June 16th through the 19th. Full of panels, talks, networking, and a good old-fashioned family cookout at the Bayer Gallery, 1802 Connolly Drive, East Point, Georgia. Don't miss out on it. Go ahead and check for a full list of events. Your boy Jay Barber got an event there. I'm talking to master and emerging artists. And I'm giving a little lecture about whether artists should go back to school. But it's talks on collecting. There's talks on collectors looking at their collections. It's all kinds of stuff. Big, big, big networking stuff. It's going to be a good time. Make sure y'all come and see it. Go see the full list of events at blackartamerica.com. Get your tickets. Come on through. We're going to be there having a good old time, baby. You got to be there, too. Now, go ahead and get to your art-loving friends. Tell them we got that good art talk for you on the noise, baby. It's Barrisford Booth and Claire Scarborough shifting time right here after the break. It's the noise, baby. Yes. 
This is Lauren Tate Baeza. I'm a thinker, and you are listening to Studio Noise. All right, it's your boy Jay Barber back with you, Studio Noise, the voice of Black Art coming at you. Live from the Black Art America Gallery, the show, Rhythm and Flow, is up right now featuring abstract work. So make sure y'all stop by the gallery. But today, got extra special guests with us. We talk about this right here. What book did y'all see? Shifting Time. African-American <laughs> artist. African-American artist, 2020 to 2021. A great book put together by my man Beresford Booth and Claire Scarborough. Uh, we got Beresford Booth, a professor at Lehigh University in Art and Africana Studies, founding and principal curator of the Petrucci Family Foundation Collection of African-American Art. Make sure I get all that oh, <laughs> and then make sure you know who he is. Yeah. And then we got Claire Scarborough, curator and former museum director, also influential, uh, very crucial to this project. Go ahead and say hi to the people, won't y'all? Hey, how's up? It's good to meet y'all. It's good to be here with Jamal. Uh, hopefully we can bring you something interesting to uh, pique your interest in our in our project, which is a passion project. Oh yeah, no, nah, it's it's definitely it's definitely gonna be that because this book right here is something else. I get a lot of art books. I want y'all to know I get a lot of art books, and this is up there with all the rest of them that you ever seen okay. cataloging. So like let, let, me, let me pressure you. What was different about it? To to me, the difference was how it was put together because a lot of a lot of books that you have have uh, such a specific focus right mm -hmm. and this book has a specific focus focus too but you're bringing in so many other voices and you get to hear from personal experiences of not just not just behind the art but what inspired the art right. and so i think that part of it is is different about it because you get a very um enthusiastic look into what people were going through at the time and i think that's uh different for you to see it to see people reflecting on their specific emotions when they created these pieces during this time, how the times are directly influencing what is being made. And so I, I say here on the podcast a lot that we don't really know what we've been through yet in terms of COVID and what's happening. And so this book yes. is to me, uh, one of the first, I think in a, in a salvo of books that are actually come the first. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's what we were proud of Jamal. We want to make sure we had the first book. Yeah, it definitely is. But first, introduce yourselves, let everybody know who y'all are, uh, and recognize the voices and all that good stuff. Claire, please. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I'm a former museum director and a curator, arts consultant. I teach as an adjunct. This was a, a great project to embark on for, for so many reasons. It was timely, and people seem to be asking for it, demanding it even. You know, the artists I've talked with, all seem to want something, you know, something, some record. And so uh, I put books together before, I've curated before, uh, and I have a lot of uh, friends within the community, including including Beresford, um, who uh, was the perfect uh, colleague, for perfect collaborator for this project. Beresford, maybe you can jump off from there. Sure. Well, I mean, I, let's just, you know, the great, as I'm fond of saying, the great thing about the truth is you ain't got to rehearse it. Um, <laughs> so Claire, I had first gotten together with, as we were saying before we went on air, for a magnificent project uh, for one of the most powerful and underrated artists in America, but specifically black female artists, 
and that's Barbara Jane Bullock out of side of Philadelphia, who's been in the game since for 50 years plus, mm-hmm. and you know whose work should be in every museum, major museum in the country and the world, and isn't. And uh, the, the title again, Claire, was uh, story chasing after chasing, spirits. Chasing after spirits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barbara, you know, I refer to as Miss Barbara because she's just my my big sister, my mother, my lover, everything. She's she's part of that generation that um, set you know set the table for the rest of us and put us in place to um, be able to uh, to keep lifting our, our our culture up and lifting our voices up. And so. Chasing After Spirits with Barbara Bullock and what an amazing book that was and how Barbara has basically a high priestess of, of black art. And I encourage all the listeners to go and uh, to Google her and look up the book and act, actually get that book if you can. It's uh, it's it's a perfect example of Claire's work. And then I started talking about myself, Jamal, that my origin stories are I'm originally born and raised uh, in Kingston, Jamaica, mm-hmm. came to uh, America in 1971. I uh, grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, large Jamaican uh, West Indian community. And uh, long story short, wound up, you know, the the little brother of a very good artist who was like as good as Charles White, but um, turned into a Rastafari and said he ain't going to stay <laughs> and made art for white people, went back yeah. <laughs> out of trees and sadly lost him a couple of years ago. But he was my first inspiration. I'm proud to say that my first relationship with the visual arts was not through institutions, was not through the inspiration of any particular artist uh, that was established. It was as a small child having an older brother who was so disconnected from the ordinary that he would do these remarkable drawings and paintings. And I was captivated by that, but I dare not call myself an artist. So, you know, swinging that arc forward, uh, I wound up going to college for architecture, but then ultimately went became a visual artist, went to the Maryland Institute, got my master's, won a fellowship, traveled to Europe, came back and built a career. And then went up, well, I wound up teaching for nearly 30 years at Lehigh, building programs and so forth. So while I was doing all that, I was also building my own career as a painter, as a printmaker, as an installation artist. I've had installations at the Fabric Workshop and Museum in Philly. I've done print residencies uh, across the country. I showed a June Kelly for a little while in my early 30s in New York and Broadway, which was fun. And um, and then I'm also an obsessive photographer. I didn't go to school for photography, but I find that the connection between all that I just said and my childhood is that I always saw the world a little different. And I really want to talk to, especially younger people uh, tuning into the podcast, that if you know and you realize that you see the world differently, photography is a great way to document that and give yourself legitimacy, right? Yeah. Like it's not about whether or not you can show them or you're a great photographer or whatever. None of that makes any difference. I think the most important thing that we'll touch on and that really comes back to shifting time is, you know, we like to talk about freedom, we like to talk about liberty, like talked about about our own vision and our you know, we want to demand our authenticity. Well, how do you know what that is unless you chronicle it, right? Right. So if you just take your digital camera, everybody's, you know, Instagram rules the world. But that's one thing to take images of yourself with makeup and at fancy places and of your food. It's another thing to use your camera to teach yourself and to teach others about how you perceive the world. Since there's no one's going to tell you that's wrong. It's your vision. And I think one of the things that's really important in the art game going forward, especially now we're talking about AI and all this other stuff, is authenticity. 
Mm-hmm. What is authentically you? That's what that's what's going to be challenged by technology. Right. When when Photoshop and computers came in, people were like, well, it can't be authentic if you can make a million of them. Yes, it can. Books, you can make a million of them. They're authentic, right? But I think we're being pushed away from looking at our own lives, no matter how dire, no matter how different, whether it's centered in the black community, whether it crosses other lines. You know, there's just, there's everybody has a way of interacting with the world. And I think photography, outside of trying to be a photographer, is a great way, and it's been used a lot, especially in the hood, to get young kids to be proud of how they see the world. And that goes right back to Shifting Time because that's what the book was about. It was about how these artists of color saw the world during this unprecedented time. And so let me read the quick blurb right quick about Shifting Time, African-American artists 2020 through 2021 explores how contemporary black artists responded to the emotional and cultural challenges presented by the COVID-19 pandemic, social justice movements, political upheaval during this critical period of turmoil and uncertainty. And I think that's a, a great way to like start the conversation because as you're saying, artists are using all these different methods and techniques. We, uh, it's like sensors, there's a lot of input coming in uh, to determine what the output is. And I think you have a direct correlation to the experience and the happenings of this particular time period to the artwork that was produced inside of it. Well, I mean, I've always told my students after 30 years plus of teaching, I started teaching when I was a junior in college, and I've always tried to, to change the script, uh, Jamal, and, and remind people that we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope a lot when we talk about visual arts, because mm-hmm. we think art is output, art is input. Yeah. You know, people just don't understand. They want to be great. They want to be famous. They want to be whatever based on what they're outputting. But that's not what's critical to a sustained and successful career as an artist, whether you make a lot of money or not. You know, because you, you, if you're not inputting, if you're not absorbing music and culture and what's happening in your hood, in your house, in your heart, in your brain, then whatever you're putting out may be, may be beautiful, but I don't think it's gonna be impactful. I think we're, we've gotta be careful in this age of everybody you know, being a influencer or whatever. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. Influence okay? and what? Do yeah. You, right. Do you, what are you saying? Like Bob Marley says at the end of, uh, what is that song? Could you be loved? Right. He doesn't mm-hmm. say, say anything. He says, say something, say something, say something. And again, back to shifting time, Claire, you know, had a brilliant idea, which is sort of, again, tethered to some of the things I was doing, which is trying to, reconstruct community right jamal i mean we yeah. all remember yeah that you know we woke up on march 13th or there about 2020 and people just like some kind of dystopian dream people yeah, said suddenly, you, suddenly you by yourself yeah yeah you cannot go outside you cannot talk to people you got to wash your groceries you got you know yeah. you're like and just think about how messed up things were before that you know <laughs> uh you know uh think about how you know how many hashtags of Black lives, you know, uh, were already in play. Think about tensions. Think about uh, inept political leadership. Think about America staring in its navel and trying to figure out who the hell it was and who the hell it wants to be. And then all of a sudden somebody wakes up and says, oh, and by the way, you cannot have community. That's all we have, the church, the community, you know, and we couldn't have it, not just on a broader thing, but locally and individually. Um, So, you know, if you're not being authentic, 
during that time, I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, um, just this idea of community, I think, is very important because this really, uh, this the book was sourced from the artists. It was really uh, made up of contributions from the community. It was really the call for participation went out to kind of the community. Uh, it was word of mouth, but it was also emails sent around mm-hmm. to various dealers. And, uh, and so we certainly ended up, uh, did, we did target uh, towards the end, of course. You know, this whole idea of, 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 of creating a book that's also kind of a, a I guess a time capsule of, of, of community voices, of basically artist voices and artist images that will continue to exist, that, that artists can refer back to, that the wider public can can kind of share too. Yeah. Um, it's not just what artists experience, it's what you know we all experience as, as human beings living through living through COVID. Yeah. And let, me, let me press you, Jamal, because I, I mean, it's one thing for us to say, but you, we sent you a copy of the book and you had a chance to look through it. Um, you know, I like the way what you said at the beginning, because we, we went out of our way not to make this a scholarly exercise mm-hmm. for artists alone, because the art game often does that, you know? We said we want everybody to love us, and then we write this encrypted stuff <laughs> where only like certain small yeah. percentage of people understand half the words, and then we wonder why people aren't interested in these art books. Yeah. So it was very important, and you know, I really give Claire credit for this for coming up with an idea where we said what we had to say as the co-editors, as the people who are going to put the thing together in it with a certain kind of structure. But you know, it was really important that we gave the artist freedom. To submit, I think initially it was like three pieces, and then you know we we we, we took it down and used some from some artists. We used more for the cover for uh, divider leaves and so forth. But fundamentally, we you know the question was you know what was going on for you, not what was going on for you based on your work looking like this yeah. or that. Yeah, right. It was yeah. like what was going on for you, and we weren't sure exactly what we were going to get, which was. Which is lovely because that's the way I make my art. Any real artist knows you go in your studio, yeah, you have an idea, but you best be ready to listen to the spirits or it's not going to work. Yeah, you got to follow the work. Yeah, you got to be vulnerable to things you don't understand yet. You got to be, you know, ready for not yetness. Things will happen, but not yet. And I think that was very much the philosophy behind this this book as we went day to day, week to week, and things started coming in. The book began to move us towards its final form is that fair that's true there? that's true i mean it was it's interesting when things started coming in we started uh, looking at layout because i mean one benefit to, to editing co-editing and, and designing is that we could we could look at the book in process uh and we were able to figure out well for the catalog section yeah only only two per artist uh but because we've made a limit of three so we, we made some decisions that impacted how the book was structured um, based on you know what what our, what our call for participation said you know how many we said three limit of three but some artists gave us five <laughs> some artists, <laughs> artists never listen never listen and read it I had to like go and nudge them like come on you gotta give me more than one <laughs> other, other artists like my dear friend and and let me just with my heart call my mentee Erlen Jafrard who's a brilliant brilliant artist he just drove me crazy, but at the end, it turns out that he was driving us crazy because he's working at a big-ass mural in the middle of Mexico City that's in the <laughs> book that none of us anticipated, yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's an absolute ornament for the book because it shows that, you know, in, in, in a limited case, we had an artist who not only wasn't in the studio, 
I was in a foreign country working on a massive project during lockdown. Mm -hmm. You know, that is, that, that's something we couldn't have dreamt up. And I think I was starting to, to knock on the door of this before, is not only did we not know what was going to happen, and as Claire said, it helped us uh, construct things like the timeline and things like um, uh, the in memoriam, where we really tried to make sure that one of the things that was most difficult for everyone during COVID, which was, you know, we we're losing loved ones and, and, and yeah. couldn't go to the funeral. Yeah. So it would be, you know, reckless and negligent of us if we did, we did a book that we didn't mention, you know, losing David Driscoll. And sadly, since we put the book out, Bill Hudson and sadly, right. you know, Nelson Stevens, some of these other people that weren't even in the book. So, uh, uh, you know, it was very important that the book felt like community, not just was a record or a time capsule of community, mm -hmm. but that it uh, had authentic voices. Mm -hmm. And that it's, and this I think is a big selling point, that it wasn't really just for artists. You know, we're really proud that this is a book that you can pick up, which by the way, just FYI, we make no money off of this because we agreed to do this, as I said, as a labor of love and passion. And we were fortunate enough that the Petrucci Foundation that I worked at for eight years was willing to put up and underwrite uh, the publication of this, but the book is actually printed on call at Amazon Press. So we don't have a room full of books. But one of the things that we were really proud of um, is you know, that uh, we've created a book that you can pick up, never have any idea about American art, contemporary art, black American contemporary art, mm -hmm. but you know what happened to you during COVID. You know how you felt because COVID was a mandate that was global. Right. And it, w it went against everything that everybody ever said could happen to the world. The world, according to capitalist structure, could not shut down. The world, according to the communist structure, Marxist, socialist, could not shut down. Somebody right. would uh, win in when everybody would be losing. We had this binary sense of our existence. It's white or black, north or south, Republican or this, Democrat. You know. So there's always this binary. Culinary is like uh, COVID came in is like, uh, you know, hold my beer. You know, I'm not playing that. Everybody, <laughs> everybody goes down. And, you know, we had trucks full of bodies. We had uh, top-end nurses and doctors in garbage bags, PPE. We had all these new terms, essential workers. And then at the same time, you know, I'm sorry, we had a crazy leader who was telling people to, to, to inject bleach and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, shine light and on it. Yeah. As you recall, I'm sure you've dealt with it in your program. We had a bunch of people like every other week, somebody of color was being abused, most notably George, uh, uh, George Floyd and, you know, Brianna, but a lot, everybody, so many other names. And, you know, I've said this in, in previous uh, interviews that we've had with, with Claire. I remember questioning my own authentic blackness during that time because it was they were flooding the zone with so much trauma, you know? And I just kept saying like, Am I authentically black if I can't remember all the hashtags? Right. Like, you know, yeah. Because I'm like, if I'm in conversation on a phone call or talking across the street to my neighbors or run into another African American artist, if I happen to go down to Philly and we're standing, you know, because I was still collecting art. So, like, when I went to Philanders Thames' studio for the first time, we both had masks on. And we, you know, we would do the niceties, but then we had to talk about what was going on because yeah. we had nobody to talk to about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember thinking to myself, like, That's this interesting, is, crazy. Yeah. Is, is FT going to think, like, 
I'm not as black as I should be if I can't remember like the last 15 hashtags. So psychologically, this period was really a drain for everybody, but I think especially for uh, uh, artists of color because we were already under the thumb of what America does to us all the time and we get up and go to church anyways. And let so, me offer let me offer this to you is that it wasn't so much that it was a deluge that started because of COVID. I think it's a deluge that we noticed because of COVID. Absolutely. I, don't, I don't think we notice how much we live with uh, this kind of continuous trauma. Like I want to talk, talk about the infinite scrolling on social media. It's an infinite scroll of yeah, you know, it's, it's booty shaking and then it's, you know, this a little joke and then it's a cat, but then it's black bodies and then yes. it's something else and then something else and then it's black bodies and then it's somebody getting shot and then it's somebody this and then, uh, you know, back to booties again. Like, it, like it's kind of this thing that we have had just gotten used to over time. But then COVID suddenly, said, yeah, COVID, COVID said, stop. COVID gave us, you know, uh, gave, COVID gave us a, a, a better sense of perspective because sometimes mm -hmm. as you're gunning, as you're going and continuing on your trip, you don't realize how fast you're moving. You don't realize how fast and how much stuff is coming at you until you stop and really pay attention. I think that's what COVID uh, showed to us a lot. I, I completely agree because COVID, were it not for COVID, um, the onslaught of news in quotes, um, America, well, first of all, America doesn't like, doesn't have a memory. America's not proud of memory. America is, is proud of what's new. You know, what's new, what's trendy. I mean, you know, every three weeks, a new magazine is telling us what is new, sexually, fashion, food, haircuts, yeah. where to go to, you know. So there's this, there's this, there's this steady diet of, um, okay, what's next? And COVID said, oh, what's next? Death. What's next? Fear. What's next? You know, dread. And then all of a sudden we had, you know, Black Lives Matter, which happened, you know, started pre-COVID. But finally the world had the same three words on their lips because the world, you know, back to this, the world, you know, we had a situation where, um, again, not unlike when I first came to America back in the 70s, and Claire, you recall this one, we only had three newscasts, right? Yeah. Three stations. Yeah. I'm not saying those three stations were telling us the truth all the time, but at least we were plugged into the same wavelength of information before mm -hmm. the news got fractured and before Fox News became uh, legit under the Reagan years as, a, as, a, as an entertainment slash quote unquote news network where they didn't have to have the fairness doctrine, which is saying that if they say some junk, they had to have somebody who could speak against it. So mm -hmm. in the apps, in the, in the presence of all you talked about and Claire and I have been talking about, and in the absence of any kind of real filter to, to tell us what's up, COVID came along and became this incredibly effective filter. <laughs> you know, you know what's going on in the world. We're all locking down. We're singing out our porches from nurses. We're losing our, our, our aunts and uncles and mothers who, of color who have to go out and all of a sudden they're essential. We, you know, they were fighting to pay him $7.25 before COVID. Then all of a sudden, I remember like a couple months into COVID, I'm driving by Target and McDonald's and they're offering $18 an hour. And I'm thinking like everybody else, oh, so they could have been paying us that from the from the get-go, but we didn't know. So yeah. there's this there's this reconciliation, right? Not a reckoning yet, but a reconciliation between 
what we were told we always had to be in a culture, what art had to be about, you know, the, the commercial aspect of it. And then all of a sudden there was a, a, a reconciling of us going, no, 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 no. My art can be about something else. And this something else is this moment in time, which I don't have any crib notes for, you know, I don't have any cheat sheet for, and that was across the globe. So, you know, we can't do a book from across the globe, but we thought it'd be a, an opportune time. Claire did to, to look at a, a I guess they would call it a control group or something like that in psychology. You know, a select amount of artists, a lot of whom I had worked with uh, while I was collecting for the foundation with Jim Petrucci and uh, then my assistant, uh, uh, Claudia Volpe, who's now the director. And, uh, you know, Jim, I guess, and Claudia saw the, the wisdom of this and helped underwrite uh, this passion project that Claire and I, um, who were friends already before, but are better friends since, um, are just really proud to put in people's hands because mm -hmm. we feel everybody from a 10-year-old kid, 8-year-old kid to an 80-year-old person can open the book, especially look at the timeline, look back day to day at what we had to absorb, <laughs> ignore, just going. So it proves a certain amount of strength and resilience for Americans in general, but in particular artists who had to look beyond all this trauma and dig within themselves to conjure up things to still bring us hope and still bring us, you know, beauty. And sometimes to talk to us about the reality of what was going on. And I think we'll jump into some of the some of the parts of the book a little bit because you talked a little bit about the timeline. It's the book features 72 artists, 164 pieces of artwork, uh, it, which is an incredible amount of stuff to it gives you a wide sample size, right? How much was actually happening at the time? Because artists, you know, as an artist, you make what you make. You never stop making no matter what happens. And so even personal, personally, I did stop making art for a little while because I didn't know what the actual value of, of having printed and working with paper and stacking all this stuff to the side and not knowing what was going to become of it. But that, See, didn't I was mean, you. that didn't mean I stopped making. I was you. I was yeah. you. Yeah. You know, like of, I was talking earlier about what I was doing. That's what I, that's why I was preaching that. Because for me, exactly what you just said, brother Jamal, I, I couldn't, I, I, I felt like in, in Christian terms or gospel terms, I needed to witness. Like it was so yeah. weird for me. I just wanted to get up every day and go, is this still happening? You know, is this still happening? But I wanted, I started feeling like, well, come on, like Jamal said, and Claire knows, um, Art is our superpower, right? You're sad, yeah. you make art. You're happy, you make art. You're in love, you make art. Art doesn't care. You can make it. That's our power. But it, I was like you. I was like, what's the purpose of mixing this blue when the world I'm looking at is insane? And yeah. other artists were like, well, we were always by ourselves anyways. <laughs> you know? So... Yeah, so we now took it a lot of different ways. See what it feels like to be an artist, which is to be by yourself all the time. <laughs> you know, it's kind yeah. of crazy. And so some of the themes of, uh, well, so you have the timeline, then you have this section that includes essays and poetry and other writings uh, by some of the artists that's also included in the collection and included in the book. And in particular, I want to talk about Tony, Tony Chapman, uh, who... <laughs> Uh, wrote these beautiful letters to her children. children I, I, yes. I thought they were particularly heartbreaking because she kept um, 
having the same refrain of if I'm no longer here. And that made me think of the severity of what was happening and how much we were actually losing people. The actual experience of living and being here was not guaranteed. And so Mm -hmm. part of that is happening in the letters as she's talking to him as these kind of wishes as because maybe the threat of her herself getting sick and not being here was so profound and on her heart while she was doing it. And I think that gave a real sense and look into the humanity that you were dealing with at the time. Absolutely. Um, I, her work is just so uh, poignant. Um, it's interesting that you say that. I think that resonates with a number of the artists. Uh, I mean, Alan Edmonds, I had conversations with him with, you know, my father is a John Henry and he says, I've taken the time to make my will because I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think a number of artists were, you know, somehow that, that comes through. No, it's, it's true. And, and, you know, again, as I said earlier in our conversation here, Brother Jamal, like, you know, it would be such a different flavor if we had gone in and said to Tony, these, these are nice poems, but can you write us something about <laughs> how your work is yeah. not really like, you know, uh, egg on, like, egg on, uh, like uh, Gustav Klimt's work, but it's really, you know, like if we got into art talk, we would have lost that, right? Yeah. So I think, again, um, we can always look at their work. I mean, Tani shows with Gallery Mertis, good friend, you know, uh, someone I really believe in. But the fact that she chose to write these letters uh, showed that, as you said, the duality of purpose, right? I mean, she is mm-hmm. here to make the art, which is to make her living, to provide for her children, to, uh, to inspire uh, other people who buy her work. But ultimately, that had to be contrasted against that importance had to be contrasted against the reality, whether or not she, like many of us, were going to come out the other side. And when we did, what would the other side look like? And that's still being written. Right. right? Yeah. Remember how they said, like, you couldn't have a four day work week? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, France, all these other countries, like, yeah. sorry, four day work week, England, <laughs> four day work week. And how they said, oh, look at Elon Musk right now. You know, he was a hero and a billionaire and a, you know, he was like the Hugh Hefner of our times. And then COVID came and, you know, all of a sudden now COVID is gone and his workers are like, we're not coming back to the office. And he turns into some line of a demi-tyrant. Demi <laughs> like, oh no, you got to come back in the office because- Yeah, you have a moral obligation to yeah. work. Yeah. Why have you got to work in the office? What is this? <laughs> I mean, look at, look at the positive side of the negative, right? Yeah. Look at the format we're using right now, like a Zoom-like, you know, uh, format using this, uh, what is it called, the, the, the program you're using, and then there's several others on the market yeah. that allow us to do, which none of us saw coming either. We lost real community. We lost real contact, which is the central element of human existence. Because nothing is real. The joke about if a tree falls in the forest, you're not there to hear it, is really talking about human existence. If you see something beautiful and you're the only one, did you see it? Mm, yeah yeah right did you see it did you dream it did you imagine it who's gonna believe you and art serves that purpose to take emotion and experience and turn it into an object a final object or a process or or time-based uh you know images that allow other people to become a companion to your own experiences right it doesn't matter what you do poetry you know some a poet doesn't just write poetry for him or herself they use words we understand to trigger emotions we couldn't imagine. So mm-hmm. it's always about how we 
talk about the truth, in quotes, of our own personal experiences to other people. And then hopefully we can add beauty to that because the truth is in itself its own kind of beauty. The Black Art Family Reunion, June 16th through the 19th at the Dubai Gallery, 1802 Connolly Drive. Along with live painting and live music, come for some great collector's panels featuring veteran collector Dr. Michael Butler talking about documenting and preserving your collection and moving from legacy collecting to contemporary. You know you gotta come. You know you wanna be there. Go to blackartamerica.com and learn more. This is a Sohei Galbraith, art collector, art enthusiast, and professional tax preparer. You're listening to Studio Noise. to talk to that doesn't work so all of a sudden zoom became a word you know and everybody started zooming not only to funerals and terrible things which made us feel sad but all of a sudden we could build community virtually yeah. as you know i did the sugar and water thing with the petrucci foundation yeah let's, get, in, let's was, get into that now that was because, fantastic. Yeah, because as we talk about it and we you talk about um what was revealed what was revealed about humanity i think was the perseverance that happens in the in the overwhelming necessity of how we will start to build a community at any way possible because we need it so much Indeed. and the, the, the idea of connecting that we will connect any way possible and so maybe this whole zoom like thing we were doing uh that was gonna happen eventually i think it accelerated because absolutely and in the end we see the need for connection in any way that we can get it is acceptable because that's how necessary it is for us to be able to maintain and survive and and you know still be humans you know right but on a positive tip at first it was like oh i hate it because you know i'm not there at you know forgive me but my grandmother's funeral i'm not there at my cousin's and i'm talking for real now you know in my real life my cousin's funeral uh my other cousin's funeral my aunt's funeral whatever i couldn't be there my best friend who died of cancer and, you know, most of the people had to mask up. Those who braved it, uh, you know, it's like I braved it to go to Mo Brooker's funeral, mm. you know, and you're sitting in someone's funeral and wondering if that might be you. So there was always this risk. But at the same time, the reward was this, you know, as we were saying before we went on air, and I, Claire and I have talked about, we were traveling down to D.C. recently to do the Chavis Chronicles, which was wonderful, a really good time. But we were talking about this on the train about how, um, you know, as I said to you, we have the situation where as a sort of offshoot of that, um, some of the artists in the book uh, and I, uh, specifically Brother Stephen Kozar down in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, picked up on this and started a chop shop. And for 28 months now, approximately, every month between four and 15 uh, artists, brothers, creatives, you know, illustrators, painters, sculptors, ceramicists, the whole root, the whole gamut, are getting together, uh, usually we started for an hour, winds up being like three, four hours. So desperate is the need for us just to talk to each other about what we, what, what's going on in our lives. And instead of now it being a drag and a downside, we get to realize that we have formed a community that's so tight that we right. haven't actually met each other. So this July, we're going to meet in North Carolina, because <laughs> we feel we know everything about each other. We know each other's houses look like, our children look like. Yeah. We have tons of conversations. <laughs> 
But we now have, and, and, and we're not alone in this, these uh, virtual communities that could not exist before. You had to get in a car, fly, get in a train or a bus to go meet somebody. Now we get to see each other that in a way that could not have been possible before. And frankly, it's wonderful. It's a lifesaver. You know, it is an extension of shifting time. Time shifted. How, as you said, Jamal, how did we shift? Yeah. And we shifted by saying, we're going to make this work. Yeah. And so and that's another part in the book where you did these sugar and water um, virtual talks. And we've seen them online. You know, we've seen them on Instagram. The uh, Adama with Fahama Piku did the art oh, yeah. salons. Fahama, and, bro, yeah. Like it was all kind of conversations happening because we still Early needed the conversation. Yep. Yeah. Right. And we just uh, didn't have a way to do it at the time. So we found a way to do it. And so all the, all of these uh, sugar and water salons included Willie Cole, Delito Martin, Juan Logan, Alfred Conte, Latoya Hobbs, Curly Holton that you were talking about. Uh, a lot of these, you know, have been on the podcast and that we love the Studio Noise family. Um, Louis Tanner Moore and all of these people. But I think what's important about the book is that you you're presenting these virtual sessions as as an official archive. Uh, and, and you write them up and you when you list the excerpts from it, you really get to see how these people were thinking in the same way that people would write a book or uh, sit down and do some other kind of interview. This was the thing. And this is the true archive of what happened during those times. The ideas were still alive and being mm -hmm. bandaged about. And now you get to see how we were responding to it. We'll give him a taste. Claire, you can pick up on this. But we, uh, you know, again, I, I give credit to Claire to just sort of the idea of taking what I had done and I had conceived of, and that's what's lovely about co a collaboration, right? You know, you have to, if it's going to work, you have to believe right. in what you do, but be ready to yeah. let go to those you trust. And Claire came up with this notion of doing these excerpts, uh, printed excerpts from, uh, from the sugar and water. And, um, and it's wonderful. I mean, I was the guy who ran them. <laughs> first time I saw the, you know, the transcripts, I was like, wow, that's what we said? You know, there's what I think of. Yeah, well, it was, it was an interesting uh, enterprise and probably the more difficult part of the book for me because the transcripts were, for most of them, were like 30 pages each. Wow. Um, and I had to sift through, and I was really careful not to change a voice or, or and to make sure that the whoever was saying something gave them enough space so to say what they wanted and to to get the picture next to them and then i tried to get all of them kind of in sequence uh, maybe with a little conversation at the end and that wasn't always easy it got even more complicated when i sent them proofs because if they start changing their words then it starts changing the amount of yeah, words yeah, on the page yeah. and then i'm like oh got too much space here <laughs> Uh, and that's and, uh, where in our partnership could come in because Claire could go, Barris, uh, <laughs> can you talk yeah. to you know? there was one. There was one sugar and water where we, we one of the artists, uh, he just, you know, I think some of his words were a little maybe uncertain and he made his words more certain. He can, It's his words. He can change his words however much he wants. But I had probably seven or eight lines at the end. And I ended up um, going back into the transcript and picking up uh, a, a quote by another artist which was, uh, I thought, a little controversial, but I thought, this is good. This is powerful. This, this, this can be in here, mm. and it can be a good ending. So I think it was the one on, uh, was it the one on Reckoning? I'm not sure which one. But it might have been Alfred. Powerful ending. Yeah. 
But, you know, again, I hope your listeners are picking up and that Claire and I treated the, the book uh, as, a, as an art project in itself, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I mentioned it before. As things fell into place, it gave us ideas about how to, as Claire just expressed, how to tweak it so that it has a respect. And if I'm making art, I always, I don't, I don't make art for the viewer. And I think about the viewer's experience and I can use my master mastery of the craft to to in a in a sweet way manipulate or direct that experience. But I'm not trying to fool the viewer. You know, I want the viewer to be vulnerable and and enter into it and discover something about him or herself based on my voice. And I think that was very much uh, why it was such a pleasure to work with Claire on this because I think that's we wound up doing things that I think any other collaborators might have clashed about. And believe me, we clashed with a small C over this, that, and the other thing. And what was lovely was that the clash was really uh, uh, sensitive and intelligent disagreements. <laughs> and it was like, if we're talking about COVID where there was, you know, people were taking up arms and storming the state capitol because they had to wear masks like poor people and whatever, you know, there was all this tension. But putting the book together and working with Claire was a kind of a reminder of how great things are actually done. They're done with a, a level of respect and you you capitulate when it's necessary and you stand up and fight when it's necessary, but you do it with 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 dignity and with respect for the collaborator so the collaborator can see through your eyes. I mean, this is all art stuff. That's why we're on the Studio Noise podcast. It's, yeah. about, it's really about the process and the philosophy of, of negotiating when you make art of negotiating art into the world, right? It's about a level of respect. And please, one of the hardest things about COVID, besides the fact that we had this invisible enemy that those who are used to demonizing people of color or women or trans or whatever, they didn't have a, an object they could demonize. Something was a threat to us that wasn't Al Qaeda or Boko Haram or the Black Pan the five Black Panthers who stood on the Lincoln Memorial 60 years ago. They didn't have a thing. And they did their best. The, the leader at the time called it the China virus. See, so we saw <laughs> something. COVID, COVID was a revelatory, trauma, traumatic, human existence changing moment. Right? It mm -hmm. brought to the fore mm -hmm. ways of thinking and imagining that simply were not allowed before at all. And if you thought like that, you were crazy. But then all of a sudden it happened and crazy came out, like crazy came out. And you, to be sane meant that you had to be, show uh, uh, evidence of empathy and forgiveness and kindness for your fellow man. That's why you wear a mask, you know? You wear a mask in case you're sick. You don't want your grandmother, your friend's mother getting yeah. sick. Yeah. You know, so there was a an inversion, not only of who was important in the culture and who we had, like you were saying about Instagram and scrolling. You know, Bill Bill Gates and and Warren Buffett and and uh, and uh, all the billionaires they didn't do jack for me. The dude in the supermarket did something for me. He made sure I had evaporated milk. <laughs> you know, he made sure I had yeast. You know, so it was a weird time, not only of stress and trauma and everything, but this inversion of what we thought our culture had to be wasn't. And so how do we show everybody else that's not an artist 
How do we remind them of not how only how crazy it was, but make them proud of their own resilience? Because we're all survivors now, right? Yeah. And and the thing was to put together this time capsule <laughs> that everybody can look back, that those who were angry can find anger, can find, uh, you know, those who couldn't work like me and you can find other artists that said, man, I couldn't work. Like Mario Moore. I mean, come on. Mario is, you know, one of the greatest out there. Mm -hmm. The fact that he shared the same kind of initial ex feelings about it, like me, like Mario could just come up and sneeze, you know, he can sneeze out a great painting just by thinking about it. And, you know, so could a, a whole bunch of other artists there, but not every one of them was like, oh yeah, I just got up and did my thing. A lot of them were like me and you, Jamal. They were like, man, I couldn't think. I was, it was scary. Yeah. His painting yeah. book is beautiful. You've got the book in front of you. Maybe you can describe that for your for the audience, but it's him looking out the window, right? Watching TV. And uh, and out the window is like, you know, January 6th. People forget January 6th was during COVID. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah, do me a favor. Take me, take me back to one of these salons. Uh, in particular, I really like the one, the Black Figuration, the rush to own Black bodies. Uh, <laughs> take me back to like how the conversation felt, if, if if you know what I mean. Not just the words, but like how necessary was it for those artists, the participants, the people that were watching to even be able to engage in a regular art conversation, like a conversation that's about art that did not have to do with all the perils and stuff uh, that happened in COVID. Like it almost felt like a return to normalcy where we do finally get to discuss what, what was that thing we used to do? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah, we, well, we used to, but, we used to talk also, and do stuff like <laughs> about, about all kinds of high level stuff that wasn't so uh, particular all the time. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, it's a really interesting question and I'll try my best to be concise, but it, there was a continuation is what you're saying. There are some things that were continuing and it, we had to kind of do a kind of Jedi mind trick of not think of this so that we could think of this, right? Yeah, exactly. But while COVID was happening, I mean, you know, businesses like Claire talked about in our recent interview, you know, galleries are shut down. We had virtual exhibitions, right? We had all this stuff going on, but there were still people putting on masks and going out to auctions. You just sat further apart and whatever. And um, something that happened before COVID had spawned the idea for that pro particular project, uh, Jamal, and that was sitting next to a, a, a I don't want to just say wealthy, let's just say uh, intelligent, erudite, wonderful black collector that came up from DC. We're sitting next to each other in New York City auction at Swan. And he mentioned to me, uh, after we both agreed that we weren't going to try to outbid each other, he said, <laughs> um, he said uh, you know, he said what he came for, I said what I came for, then we decided we were going to be friends. And at one point, one of these pieces that was up, it might have been a Barkley Hendrix or something that, that people were fighting for, you know, on the phone, blah, 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 blah. And eventually the, the, um, the, the auctioneer, you know, uh, got the right price and he did the thing where, it, you know, he hit the gavel and said, sold for, you know, 300 and whatever thousand or whatever it was for the price. And the gentleman leaned over to me and he said, don't ever forget that these auction houses, these same auction houses, and the same process of us purchasing the art of our people to preserve our culture, that same gavel used to sell our bodies. Mm -hmm. And it blew my mind because, you know, I'm so at the time I was so busy trying to do good for the, for the, for the culture, trying to collect art that could tell stories after I'm gone, trying to quilt together a narrative that would be inspiring that I had forgotten the obvious. 
And that comes back to COVID. And so I wanted to go back to talking about the uncomfortable, which was COVID or not, Instagram was there. And you can, you know, your, your, your listeners are informed people, they, they can remember, there seemed to be just an incredible uptick in how many ways you can paint black bodies, you know, were they yeah. Harry Marshall yeah. black? Were they, uh, you know, and I mean this with, with kindness now, you know, uh, uh, my brother Clarence down in uh, in in in, uh, uh, in North Carolina, doing green faces. But then those were authentic. But then there were everybody looking at Instagram and going, "Oh, uh, you know, um, Tony Chapman's doing this, and uh, Monica Keg was doing this. So I'm going to copy that, but I'm going to make mine purple." My son calls them neon painting. Like yeah, as if that was the that for for some reason they thought that was the secret sauce. The, right, the color yeah, of the it skin, wasn't about our pigmentation. Yeah, about, like how you could play <laughs> with the term colored and blackness, and yeah. and and because it's Instagram, we would have like two hundred people doing nonsense paintings by doing colors, but then we'd have fifty people doing something legitimate where they're playing around with the tonality of skin, so forth and so on. Yeah. Like Charles Edward Williams doing his thing, you know, blah blah blah. So I just thought I'd put these two things together and try to talk about something that was difficult. Um, and I, I won't name the gallery owner, but he's a friend of mine. He's not black and he represents a lot of black artists. And I, from what I hear reasonably fairly in New York. And I asked him, called him up and personally asked him to be part of this. And he shied away. Mm. I, understandably. Right. Mm, it's, yeah. it's his bread yeah. and butter. Yeah. And I guess he might have felt that it could have been a, you know, quote unquote, uh, me too, or a canceling moment. If he concurred that we were in the middle of this kind of, yeah, global renaissance of black art that did not need quote unquote white gallery permission. But at the same yeah. time, what was going on? Why were all these subpar images of black bodies being sold just because somebody could make our faces and our features, the texture of grass or whatever, <laughs> like what was, what was going on? And I didn't have an answer. I wanted to have a meaningful conversation about the, the, the trend of black bodies and whether or not we had moved forward from being on the auction block. So our literal bodies weren't on the block anymore, but the very same auction blocks were selling our uh, visual representat representational bodies as ornate, you know, exotic, all the negatives that were sort of, you know, pinned on black art for, for centuries. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden our black skin was the in. So it bothered me. And of course I had to be careful because in that conversation are artists that I have and and Claire hold in the highest regard, like Brother mm -hmm. Alfred Conte, you know, like Dr. Fahamu Piku. You know, we're not using the same language with them. And so it was it, I wanted to have a a conversation. It wasn't exactly what I wanted, but I think we got some interesting things. And I think those people who pick up the book on Amazon will see uh, that kind of thing. And I just want to say quickly, just before I send it back to you, uh, that's another thing I'm really proud of working with Claire to create this project or this product is that it's compartmentalized in a way that allows the reader to go deep in different aspects of the book. You can go deep in sugar and water and not look at any pictures. You could just open it and look at the images and think, my God, all yeah. these paintings were done in the first 12 to 15 months of COVID. They're yeah. not the same. Black people aren't making the same things. They don't have the same opinions. You could look at the timeline and look at a certain date when something happened in your life and think, 
oh, that's what's a headline in the newspaper. I remember now. So it, it's really trying to poke at in a, in a good way and remind uh, the viewers, not just of the experience of the artists who were in the book or the people who put it together, but of their own experiences. It is a book that demands like a good painting or a good piece of art that the viewer brings him or herself to the product and they will mm -hmm. find him or herself in the product. That's something I'm deeply proud of from the product. And, and this is a question for both of y'all in terms of the artists that were included in the book. Uh, a lot of names that we've thrown out already, but well, let's add some more to sure. Vanessa German, Emo Yensei oh. Ime, uh, Dominic Chambers, uh, Tony Chapman that we mentioned before, um, and so many more that, uh, who was it in the book that really provided you um, with something that you connected with in particular, like for both of you. And it can be for any artist for any reason. Lavette Ballard, when I mention her too, what is Stuart Oh, Lewis, to Lavette. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, so, so many of, of the images and artworks resonated. Uh, I, I think it, for me, a lot of it really was about the communication and the relationships I have with the various artists. And some I, uh, uh, became acquainted with for the first time, like Diane Smith, who I thought was fabulous. Um, Barbara Bullock, uh, I worked with personally on her essay, and Richard Watkins. Um, and so, you know, th their works kind of you know, speak to me because um, because I because I know them, and and I you know I I can see I don't know I'm part of their experience, I guess I don't know. Um, so. But there's so many, so many things in the book that uh, are impressive and impressed me personally. Embarrassed, but I know you have some favorites. There was one in particular that you, was, there was only one, one work in the book that we went back and we asked the artist for something else, something you had seen. Remember? What was that? I don't remember. What, um, what was that, Claire? <laughs> and that was, we had so many conversations. That was, that was, your, was uh, Toki's little boy. Oh, Oh, come on, Tokyo Rome Taylor and Sachi Rome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Come Fabulous. on, you know. Another thing about the book, so many of these art projects are provincial, right? They only speak to a certain region. Mm -hmm. And you still see that trend in a lot of uh, cur curatorial efforts, right? They're trying mm -hmm. to be clever by being exclusive, mm -hmm. you know? And then what we get is that we get a singular vision of black art. Now, I'm not, again, mm -hmm. against this. It just can't be a standard model, like the Dirty South. I love it because it's holding up and saying, hey, you're not paying attention to what's happening in the South. And as we know, the relationship, you know, of the, the existence of the African-American cannot be extricated from the relationship between the North and the South. That's just, that's just our history. Mm -hmm. But then you have someone like Toki Rome Taylor, who I was proud to be asked to write um, an essay for her book, which I recommend your listeners get called Reclamation, which is beautiful yeah it's a great book um, yeah. great book and toki and sachi but you know I, i'm a i'd love i'm happiest when i'm painting and uh and the i never saw the collecting thing coming until mr petrucci jim called me up and asked me to do it i said no twice and then eventually i took it on you know i brought on a lot of experts like lewis moore like curly you know uh like the late bill hudson people who could school me in the kind of book you know, collection I should put together. So it was very odd. But as the collection started to come together, uh, my assistant at the time, uh, Devin Briggs, would search the internet, uh, search Instagram and find people whose work she felt 
were akin to some of the other works in the collection, which made the collection more organic and less about somebody's money or whatever. Right. But the book, going back to this provincial thing, the book covers from Portland, Oregon to Miami, you know, to Little Haiti in Miami, to Connecticut and everything in between. Mm -hmm. So really, even though it's a, you know, a select group of African-American artists, it's not a select group of young artists. It's not a select group of emerging artists. It's not a select group of established artists. There are a lot of bigger artists that both Claire and I know who could have been invited into the, to, to this project, but they were having major other exhibitions. They, you know, we weren't going to bother them. So we really tried to reach out to artists that we felt would give a, a, a spectrum, not just of geographical location and, 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 and spiritual uh, connectivity to their own work and blah, 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 but ultimately would give a snapshot of an America that just happens to be black America. Mm. You know, it was really a snapshot of America during COVID, yeah. but we got Morel Doucette, who's one, and his partner, Stephen Dubois, who did those beautiful images that, that's on the cover and also in, in the book. And then we go to Toki, uh, and she, you know, back to this black bodies thing, decorating black bodies. It could be easy to dismiss Toki as someone who is uh, dressing up beautiful black children in, uh, in in retro European garb, so that we can look at comparative analysis. And as Lewis Tanner Moore says, it's only legit if we can point to a white artist or a white person who did it first. Mm. And so someone who's not fundamentally grounded in the history of this could make that mistake about Toki's work. That's not what she's doing. She's not dressing up these beautiful young black children from her neighborhood, her own friend's children, uh, to talk about, uh, to say to the viewer, hey, if I put a little black girl in pearls and feathers, doesn't she look like she belongs? What she's talking about is something much deeper, which, you know, part of it is, you know, we live in a culture where black children can be quote unquote tolerated until a certain age. Up until a certain age, they're beautiful and cute and ornate and blah, da, 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 like an Urkel, you know, Emmanuel Lewis kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they're 13 and they're thugs and killers and whatever. Yeah. You know, the, the, yeah. The, the the cliches take over. So Toki's work is interesting because she's taking the ornate things from her neighborhood that have to do with Yoruba culture and other kinds of religiosity and, and, and cosmo cosmology within black culture so that when you see a child standing in a beautiful lace dress, which goes back to the quilt traditions and the, the, the stitchery traditions in black culture, and she'll find that lace dress, either have it made or have it buy from a store. And then that child has her hair made up beautifully, but it's got cotton balls in her hair to talk about our legacy. And then the, the jewelry is pearls because they're pearls, it's natural and that, that has meanings. But then she's holding a mirror, hiding her face, which is protecting her spirit, according to Robert Ferris Thompson's book. You know, you have these multi-layered things, but you also have this beautiful photograph of a, a child and so you, as she will readily say, you start to think about who are black children and, and what part of their beauty and power of spirit is lost when we buy the oranges that America is selling about our own people. That's a different story than don't they look cool in clothing <laughs> from the <city? laughs> right. That's different. 
Yeah. And it's, I think it's the same when you think about Kahinda Wiley's work, where he takes bums off the street and paints them in, you know, or the homeless or the indigent. I may not say bums, the homeless and the indigent, and paints them as ro royalty and regal. He's talking about reclaiming the spirit and, mm -hmm. and, and challenging us to look at ourselves as, 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 as beings of value, okay? No matter right. what people say about us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, even if we're the ones dying disproportionately like during COVID, even if we're the ones uh, taking the brunt of it, Toki was producing these images of this beautiful black boy with these sort of different world specs on and you know, sitting there in his royal blue, looking like he could have ruled you know, any nation in the world. That's a, a potent reminder while we're busy remembering all the hashtags. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a, a good value of this book, man. So uh, I'm going to end it with one of the sayings from your book. You said it's a lasting memo of this remarkable period. And I think that's what you have here. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I'm going to hold it up again so everybody can see it. This book, Shifting Time. Y'all go ahead and get this book. Man. Yes, please. <laughs> get it. Like, we, it's don't, a great we don't get any uh, residual profits off that. We got paid to do what we do. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we could have asked for a lot more, but it was about the book. And, um, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I've been talking to Jim and Claudia about, um, you know, the, the, the nominal, uh, quote unquote, profit. We can't really make a profit, but if there's a 50 cents a dollar or whatever, that goes to a separate account in, a, in than the, the foundation. And we're hoping to be able to uh, utilize that uh, to feed that back into the, the circle of maybe providing scholarships for uh, people in underrepresented. Oh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be yeah. wonderful. Yeah, That's wonderful a great way, way to, to, yeah. to, to use the legacy to create legacy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a statement in the book about all proceeds being donated to African American arts groups, and that's that is very, very important. And also, just to point out, it's available on Amazon. This is not a book that's going to sit in the storeroom of some museum and have no one see it, or to sit on some rich collector's shelf and have no one see. Well, hopefully, it will sit on rich collector's shelves, but <laughs> but but it's available. It's accessible, and we made it. We priced it as low as we possibly as as low as Amazon allowed us. And they've actually given a discount because we think we're selling so many units. So <laughs> it, it's less than when it first came out. And just finally, to collectors during COVID, the end, near the middle to end of COVID, I was asked to go to Christie's auction house by Destiny, uh, the collector, and uh, you know, um, and uh, and I gave a talk, and the talk was kind of uh, preemptive about this, which is. Um, I realized how many major collectors while I was talking to this group of masked, like 250 masked people at Christie's, that they just didn't know the artists in the book. So again, uh, Jamal would be negligent if we let we signed off and didn't say, for those of you who are not sure about uh, which artists are out there, for those of you who are used to seeing the same artists of color over and over again, this is not the book for you. I mean, sorry, this is the book for you that you can look through and go, yeah. I didn't know about Lavette Ballard. I did not know about yeah. Charles Edward Williams. I did not know about uh, Toki Rome Taylor and Sachi Rome Taylor. I did not know that the director of the Brandywine uh, Workshop and Archive, the oldest black printmaking uh, institution since Bob Blackburn's spot, uh, also did beautiful art. So it really is a, uh, a, 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 a compendium that we we really hope uh, will have uh, people across the country looking through, contacting these artists, and helping to generate momentum from the ashes of COVID, from 
the trauma of, uh, without community. We hope that the book becomes a source material for collectors, for curators, uh, for for appreciators of fine art. So they historians. Know, yeah, for historians, yes. uh, for for schools. You know, we're we're yeah. in Florida now, making our history legal. Well, you know, now you can buy our book like you're buying moonshine. You can smuggle it in your kids look at some artists and go, oh my yeah. God, I, maybe I can move to Arkansas and see this work. Maybe we'll wrap it in a black plastic bag. So you yes. can yes. <laughs> so it's see sad, it. but it's true. But, you know, that's America. Yeah, it is. Uh, after, it is. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think it's important how uh, I use this podcast a lot for that same reason, too, that no, I don't have the big names on every single week, but I have the people that you need to know. And I, I think there's a lot of good work being done that needs to be celebrated just as much as the high profile people that you'll see in the high or in the Guggenheim or wherever well, that Ju is. Uh, it's more art than just that being done. Julie May yeah. you know, I went to see her show three times at the Whitney and bless my partner, Claire, just shoots out in the dark and says, maybe she'll do it. Now imagine how, how blessed we are that someone of that caliber, as you were just saying, Jamal, somebody of that level, who does not need to do this book at all? Yeah, looked at the concept and obviously felt that was meaningful enough to agree to participate. That was a case for several others. So that was, you know, for us to wrap it up. The the most important endorsement are that the people that are above us and are quote unquote more important than us saw the project as as something that possibly had lasting value. Uh, absolutely. So we're gonna make sure y'all get it. As we go, um, tell people where they can get in contact with y'all and where they should be looking. Well, Amazon, just Google it. Shifting yeah. time. That's for the book. I'm on uh, Instagram at Ver, uh, at Verbena2160. Uh, if you can't find a six foot four inch black man named Beresford <laughs> with more arm, you ain't trying hard enough, man. Just look up my name and uh, you'll see what I'm up to. And uh, Claire and I are, are open. Uh, you know, if you want to contact us for any projects yeah. you have in mind. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, we're in LinkedIn and stuff like that. So, you know, again, we get nothing from this except the beauty of being able to share it through, uh, uh, you know, the medium like Brother Jamal's Studio Noise, which is respected, and 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 the pleasure of knowing that our project uh, is appreciated and uh, and of interest. That's all we get. That's what's up. It's the joy of art, baby. Yes. <laughs> it's the noise. Make sure well, thank you, you so it. much, Jamal. This is yeah, Jamal. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. No, thank y'all. Thank y'all for coming. You know, on. we've I been trying to get for a lot for a bunch of years right now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's finally break the ice. Maybe yeah, we can I think do it's another a, one on Chop Shop. I think it's an important book, and people need to make sure they pay attention to it. All right. Yeah, I appreciate you. <laughs> thank you. That's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Big shout out to Beresford and Claire for making this tremendous book, Shifting Time. Make sure y'all check it out. Next week, another legendary artist on the show, Leroy Campbell's in the house. It's going to be a good time for sure. And all my artists out there, like my man Beresford said on the episode, Marley said, Say something, say something. You gotta say something with your artwork. Don't just make it for nothing. Celebrate yourself, your ancestors, your people. It's all good. It's the noise. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.